Good morning, everyone. So here we are in the very final week of our sermon series. It happened in Corinth 2, based on the book of 1 Corinthians. We started this series way back in April. It's been quite a long series. Some of you are probably thinking, finally, we're coming to the end of 1 Corinthians. But uh, it's been quite a, quite a, a lot of uh, interesting topics that we've dealt with as we've gone through 1 Corinthians, uh, everything from divisions in the church to sexual ethics to how to deal with weird, outdated biblical instructions about men's and women's hair length to uh, how to win rewards from God, spiritual gifts, and building up the church. We talked about the t- gifts of tongues and prophecy, giving to the poor, and a lot of other things. And we haven't covered everything from the book of 1 Corinthians, but we've covered a lot, of, a lot of great stuff. It's been a great series. At least Mike and I have had a really good time preaching through this and dealing with uh, different topics as they've come up and discussing them and preparing messages. And, and I hope that uh, most of you have, have had a good time as we've uh, dealt with all these things, even though some of the topics were really tough ones to, to, uh, to explain. But... Uh, But next week, as Mike mentioned, is our big fifth anniversary celebration. And then, coinciding with the launch of Thursday Night Service, is going to be the launch of our new sermon series on uh, the uh, Fruit of the Spirit. You can see our little uh, board back there with the popsicles on it as our new logo theme for our new series on the Fruit of the Spirit. And that's going to be a really great uh, series, too. And I'm really looking forward to how that's going to be as we learn about these character traits that God is seeking to develop in our lives. But today, we have one more passage from the book of 1 Corinthians to cover, and it's a great topic, so let's get right into it. We're in chapter 15, and we're going to start right from verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 15. It says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly... To the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. How valuable is it for all of us to be reminded of the foundational beliefs of the gospel? And that's what Paul wants to do as he's coming toward the end of the book of 1 Corinthians. He wants to, to remind them of the gospel. Um, we've talked about all kinds of practical topics about life and ministry and church in this series, but now we finish with a reminder of the gospel by which we are saved. Here's uh, uh, verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. First importance. Here's what Paul taught the Christians in Corinth as being of first importance. This is not just important things, but this is the most important things. These are the things that are of Uh, First importance, the core of the Christian message of the good news, core of the gospel, the message that when we believe it, we are saved. And here it is. uh, He breaks it down in several phrases here in uh, verse 3 and 4. It says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, that's a pretty brief statement, but there's a lot of meaning here. Christ died for our sins. That's obviously one of the most important facts about Christianity. We talk about that a lot, uh, the fact that Christ died for our sins. And it implies a few things that are spelled out more fully in other parts of the Bible. First of all, it implies that we are all sinners, right? 
In other words, we have all failed to live up to the standard that God has set for us. We've all chosen at various times throughout our lives not to do what we know to be right and instead to do what we know to be wrong. We are all sinners, and the Bible teaches that the justice of God requires that the penalty for sins must be paid. And that penalty is death. And that's why, as it says, Jesus died for our sins. Jesus did not want to see us pay the price for our own sins, and so he paid the price on our behalf. He died a sinner's death, tortured and executed, so that people could be saved from the justice that we owed. So that now, if, as it said back in verse 2, if we hold fast to the gospel message, putting our faith in Jesus, we can be saved. The next part of Paul's summary of the gospel is that this happened according to the scriptures. According to the scriptures. Now that means, uh, means uh, that Jesus' death for sins was predicted beforehand in the prophecies of the Bible. But these prophecies, they weren't simply just uh, demonstrating that God knew what was going to happen. They weren't just predictions of the future. They were much more than God simply revealing that he already knew what was going to happen next. It was God revealing his plan beforehand for how he was going to deal with the problem of human sinfulness. When it says that Jesus died according to the scriptures, it means that his death was according to the plan that God had revealed to us in the scriptures. When the first people, Adam and Eve, chose to rebel against God and to choose their own way instead of God's way, dooming the entire human race to sin, God already had a plan for how he would save us from that. And Jesus' death happened just as God had planned it, according to the scriptures. And then the next part of the summary is that he was buried. Now, this is included as as one of the things of first importance in order to emphasize that Jesus was actually dead, right? Jesus did not just suffer for our sins. He died for our sins. This is very important to the overall point that Paul is making. Jesus was dead. And not only mostly dead, like Wesley and the Princess Bride, you know, he wasn't quite dead. He was... Only most. Jesus was really dead. He was all dead and he was buried. But the next part is pretty important too, and that is the topic of the rest of this chapter. Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. On Friday, Jesus was dead. On Saturday, Jesus was dead. On Sunday morning, Jesus was still dead until sometime around sunrise, he was not dead anymore. Jesus rose from the grave. Again, the Bible emphasizes that this happened according to the scriptures. All of this was exactly according to God's plan. And then we have the last part of the summary. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters all at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, Paul says, he appeared to me also 
as to one abnormally born. The last part of the summary of things of first importance is Paul's evidence that the resurrection was real. Jesus wasn't simply alive in the hearts of his followers who remembered his teachings. And so, uh, because of their fond memory and keeping his memory alive, he wasn't really dead. No, Jesus appeared physically in a resurrected body to people, repeatedly, to quite a number of people. Some of those people the Corinthians had actually met. And if they wanted to, they could go track down hundreds more people who had seen Jesus with their own eyes after he had been dead and had come back to life. Paul wants there to be no doubt in the fact that Jesus really rose from the dead. And why was it so important to emphasize that? Because there were people in the church in Corinth who didn't think it was true. It says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Apparently, some of the Christians in Corinth uh, liked Christian teachings, but they were unwilling to accept the idea of resurrection from the dead. No reason is given here uh, of why they would disbelieve in the resurrection. Probably it had something to do with their Greek philosophical worldview. Um, We see that uh, in the book of Acts when Paul is in the city of Athens. Uh, He goes to speak before a bunch of uh, Greek philosophers there in Athens, and he's explaining to them about Jesus and about God, and they're interested in everything he has to say until he comes to the part where he mentions the resurrection. As soon as he mentions the resurrection, the Bible tells us that they sneered at the idea and would have, uh, wouldn't listen to any more that he had to say. And these people in Corinth seem to have been members of the church, but they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They believed that the benefits of being a Christian in this life were enough to justify practicing the religion, even if there was no resurrection to look forward to. Christianity is good, even if it is only for this current life. No future resurrection life in heaven was necessary for them. Is that kind of thinking still around today? Absolutely. In fact, it's quite popular uh, in our culture today to say that religion, if you choose to follow it, is good for those who practice it, and it's even good for society. Quick Google search gave me quite a few articles on the benefits of religious practice. I got some quotes here from a couple of those articles. One is from an article in Forbes magazine. The title of the article was, Religion is Good for All of Us, Even Those Who Don't Follow One. And here's what it says in that article. It says, quote, Studies have shown that religious attendance once or more per week leads to an extra seven years of life expectancy. Once or more per week. Did you hear that? Um, <laughs> Other studies have shown other health benefits, such as stronger immune system and lower blood pressure. Religious participation by kids has shown to result in less juvenile delinquency, less drug use, including less smoking, better school attendance, and a higher possibility of graduating from high school. Similarly, adults who regularly attend religious services also commit fewer crimes. So it's good for our society. It's good for us to practice religion. Another article in the Huffington Post was titled, Why Religion is Linked with Better Health and Well-Being. 
And in that article, it tells its readers that there is overwhelming research, uh, overwhelming research evidence that people can live longer if they actively engage in formal religious activities and follow their faith's behavioral prescriptions. That article in the Huffington Post goes on to quote a professor of sociology who says, regular and frequent religious attendance does seem to be one of the significant predictors of less stress and more life satisfaction. So in light of these kinds of benefits and many other things that aren't mentioned in those articles, um, there are many people today who, like this group in the Church of Corinth, want to be Christians but they don't really believe uh, or buy into this whole heaven and hell, life after death um, part of the thing. They just want the community. They want the ethical teaching, the traditions, the encouragement to improve their lives now. They believe that when we die, we're dead. But religion is still good uh, to give us a better life now. And the Bible's response to this kind of thinking is right here. In the chapter. Here's what Paul says. He says, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And then a few verses later, he says, For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. The Bible says that faith in a Jesus who did not raise from the dead is useless and futile. Some people want to follow Jesus only as a good teacher who taught us some good moral principles to live by. Love your neighbor, honor your parents, uh, be a good Samaritan to those in need, forgive one another. And, and Jesus did teach a lot of great ethical principles. But Jesus was much more than a philosopher or an ethical teacher. Did you notice that the summary of the gospel that was preached in Corinth, the things that Paul said, these are the things that are of first importance, they had nothing to do with ethics or Jesus' teaching. Christianity is primarily about how to be saved from our sins, not about how to have a better marriage and better health. The climax of Paul's rejection of a Christianity that's all about this life is in verse 19, where it says, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. There really are advantages to following Christian teachings, even in this life. But here Paul is making a point using hyperbole. Forbes and the Huffington Post and all the rest are recognizing the good things that Christianity can bring into our lives, even in the here and now. But in comparison to the full truth of the gospel and the reality of the promise of eternal life with God, a faith that only gives these small benefits for this life is pitiful. And most importantly, the resurrection of Jesus and the promise of our own resurrection is true. That's why Paul lists all these witnesses to the resurrection. He wants to make sure that the Corinthians understand that resurrection is not just a nice idea that would be great if it were true. It is true. 
Look at that next verse, verse 20. He says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection from the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Jesus was the first fruits. That's a, a, a term that means that he was the initial harvest that shows that the rest of the harvest will also come in. Jesus rose from the grave to show that we will also rise from the grave. The resurrection of Jesus, which was historically viable or verifiable by hundreds of eyewitnesses at the time of this writing, uh, is a fact. Our own resurrections are a promise based on that fact. And whatever benefits we enjoy as a result of being part of the church now are pitiful compared to the things that are to come. And the hardships that come from our faith too. Because for many people throughout history of the church, including today, uh, there are significant disadvantages too that come along with the Christian life. Paul experienced some of those. Especially relevant, he experienced violent persecution. And yet, here's what he said about it in the book of Romans. He said, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So whether we think of the good things that come to us as a result of being a Christian, or we think of the disadvantages and sufferings that come to many of us as a result of our faith, the glory of our eternal resurrected life will be so great as to make them all insignificant. We have a great hope to look forward to. We will live forever in the presence of God, in immortal bodies, enjoying paradise with no end. So that's one of the big points of our chapter this morning. We do not have only the pros and cons of our faith for our lives now to motivate us to follow God. We have the certain promise of resurrection from the dead and eternal life with God in paradise. And the fact that our faith is about the resurrection, the next life is of first importance. But does this mean that we should care little then about this world and our lives in it? Are we to focus entirely on making sure that we get to heaven and that we take as many people with us as possible? The question um, is especially important when we start to think about what kinds of ministries should we be involved in as Christians and as a church? Should we be involved in alleviating poverty and suffering? Or should we be exclusively focused on evangelism? Now, of course, this isn't really a question of one or the other. There's a broad spectrum between the two extremes. We can uh, picture this as a line with the two worlds or two lives on either end. The Bible teaches that we need to be concerned with both this life and the next life. Last week's sermon from 1 Corinthians was about giving to the poor. And Pastor Mike showed us from many passages all throughout the Bible that we have a responsibility to meet the physical needs of fellow men and women whenever we are able to do so. God requires us to be generous to the poor. 
Other parts of the Bible show that, uh, uh, such as the parable of the Good Samaritan is a good example, shows that we have a responsibility to help with other kinds of physical needs, not just giving to the poor, as are also a Christian responsibility. We must have concern for people like the guy in that story, people like the refugees and the victims of war and injustice from around the world. And so ministries like the Free Burma Rangers or the community development work being done through child sponsorship programs like Compassion International, those are absolutely a part of the work that God wants his church to be about. Now, over the years, there have been pendulum swings in churches moving toward greater emphasis on one side or the other of this axis, either a great emphasis on this life or a great emphasis on the next life. But as American Christians, I think right now we are currently experiencing a shift along this spectrum among many of our churches. American Christianity is moving toward a greater concern for the things of this life. And it's clear that when we read the whole Bible, that when the pendulum swings too far to either side, we have a problem. We must be certain that we do not seek to make this life better for those around us while ignoring the salvation of the souls. We do not want a whole lot of well-fed people dying without Christ and ending up in hell. But at the same time, it is not good for us to seek only to preach the gospel while ignoring the physical needs of the people around us. If we have the ability to help, we must. So where exactly is the balance between those two? Well, it's kind of hard to say exactly where the balance is, but the main thing is that we need to focus our ministry and our faith and our practice of religion on both this life and the next. And as long as we're striving to keep them both in view and looking for that balance, I don't think we'll be too far off. Now, the last part of this chapter that I want to talk about this morning gives us a little bit of a look at when and how all this is going to happen. It starts in verse 51. This is what he says there. He says, uh, Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. That is, we will not uh, all die. We will not all sleep. But we will also not go into eternity in the same body that we have now. We will have immortal, deathless, perfect bodies. That is, we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the resurrection of the dead will take place when Jesus returns to earth to set up his eternal kingdom. And the last trumpet blows to declare his coming. It says, For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. That is, our bodies will go from these mortal, perishable ones into the immortal, imperishable ones. For when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
we have victory over death. Our last breath will not be our last breath. Jesus has already defeated death. He died and was buried and rose from the grave. Most of us will also die and be buried, although the Bible does teach some of us will get to skip that step if we happen to be alive at the time when Christ returns. We will rise again with new transformed bodies and we will live on a new transformed world enjoying perfect lives in a perfect environment forever. We can have victory over sin and death. That is of first importance. That is the promise of the gospel on which we want to now end our series on 1 Corinthians. Then the saying will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for loving us and saving us from our our sins and their consequences. Lord, we thank you for sending Jesus to die in our place so that we can live forever in heaven with him. Father, help us to, to know rightly how to live our lives in light of this fact. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.